When you can take the pebble from my hand, it will be time for you to leave. What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? No, Neo. I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. What do you want me to do? You just want me to hit you? Come on, do me just one favor. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't know. Never been in a fight. You? No, but that, that's a good thing. No, it is not. How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? This alpha predator of yours, Doctor, do you really think he has a chance? Let them fight. So far, he's tired, he's bleeding, but he's on his feet, and he's on the run. Welcome back to Box Podcast. My name is Chris Maverick, and once again, as always, I am here with Wayne Wise. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Mav. I'm back again, too. We do that every week. We do that every week. It's exciting. And for the last several weeks, we've both been here. We've actually you, been you know, here, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird when you miss your own show, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just our show, and that's sort that's of, right. um, that's yeah, that's kind of the... It's kind of the point. It's kind of the point, yeah. I, I, <laughs> given the topic tonight, I think it's going to be less our show than, than most of them, because... I, I think it's a fascinating topic. I don't know how much I have to say about it. I'm really curious to hear what, what our guests have to say. Okay, well, n- let me start with asking you a question, since you know the topic and I haven't actually said it out loud. <laughs> so, <laughs> have you ever been in a fight? Not Well, not for a long, long time. Like, in fifth grade, I, I was in a fight on the bus, mm-hmm. and that girl beat snot out of me. So, Her name was Ethel. She was a big cow wrestling girl, because I grew up in the country, so, you know... Um, her, her, her brother Earl, who was significantly older and much larger than I was, was standing there watching it. So, so I, I think I just let her beat me, but you know, (laughs) Well, I've I've been in a few fights. I've been, you can tell, you know, as one of our guests, Marone, who's been on the show before, he often said back when I was applying to grad school and I was trying to decide which one, he said, Mav, keep in mind, you're the kind of person who pisses people off. And I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) that is, that is one of the things that he told me, but (laughs) speaking of that, I forgot that that I said that, but that sounds like something I would say. (laughs) <laughs> and that is Marone, who's back again. But the reason he's here, no, there's a couple of reasons here. he's here. First off, if I were going to be in a fight again, and again, you know, it's happened. I figured who, who would be the two people that I would want fighting, you know, with me to help me out. So Marone, in addition to being a longtime friend of mine and fellow scholar, was also my one-time karate instructor. That's how we nice. met, actually. And the other person who is on the show with us. Now, this is going to be very, very confusing for listeners. I used to be a professional wrestler. Yes, I was. Trust me. I never said I was good at it, but I used to do it. And back when I was a wrestler, my tag team partner, when I first started out, was at the time Shima Zion, who now goes by the name DJZ. And he is one half of the current Impact Wrestling World Tag Team Champions with someone much more talented than me. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty spot on. But we lost those tag titles like four weeks ago on television. <laughs> oh, dude, how much, how, how well I'm watching. <laughs> yeah, so you're you no longer, 
You're no longer tag champion. Oh, that's a, well, actually you were when we booked the show, but then again, you're more famous than me. You got to go to Thailand, and travel the world and <laughs> yeah, I've been busy. Yeah. You've been real busy. So former, former tag champion, former impact wrestling X division champion. Yep. Twice, three times, twice, twice, twice. twice. And if you're not a wrestling fan, what the X division championship is, is most wrestling belts are based on weight class impact. X division is based on how many stupid things can you do to your body <laughs> in, the name, Pretty much. in the name of trying to win a fight. And one of the reasons that, okay, by the way, I'm going to call you Shima or Sheems throughout probably most of this podcast because you've been going by DJZ for how long now? Uh, oh, 10 years, maybe not quite four, 10 four, now four years is DJZ. Oh, four? Okay. Four years is DJZ. And before, and before that you had another name and way, way, way before that you were Shima Zion, which is what your name was when I met you and what I tend to call you. So, but you've been DJZ and you've been X division champion and tag champion. And the way the X division works is, Oh, what was Mike Tanay's old line? Mike Tanay is a wrestling commentator. It's not, a, oh, it's, it's not, not about, about weight, weight limits. limits. It's about no it's about limits. No limits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that really mean? I'm not sure. I don't know how to define it. And that's an issue with the X division is you can't clearly define it. Like the WCW cruiserweights, which would be like the X division before the X division, they had a weight class. It was like 220, yeah, something like that. Yeah. 225 and under something like that. So that's how you could clearly define the WCW cruiserweights. It's the then, smaller wrestlers, 225 and under. But then in Impact Wrestling, like Samoa Joe was the X Division champion. He's the size of both of us combined easily. Yes. <laughs> He's a huge dude. Yeah. But so it, it was just kind of this vague thing, but it to me, it just kind of represented high spot oriented wrestling, which is kind of like a fireworks show. You know, like it's a lot of oohs and ahs. It's uh, it's acrobatic would be another word I'd use to describe it. Uh, creative, fast paced. It's uh, it's like a roller coaster ride. Ooh, yeah, that's <laughs> but I don't know how to define it. <laughs> well, yeah, well, but I mean, that, and that's kind of why I asked you to come on this week, because the topic for those of you who have not been reading the blog and here's the weekly plug, go read the blog, www.boxpopcast.com. The topic for this week is based on Marone's dissertation. Uh, and Marone, you yeah, have a upcoming book. Yeah. Oh, okay. An upcoming book that you're working on. And you also did a mini like Ted talk kind of thing on it, right? I did a Ted style talk at Tufts. Yeah. yeah. And you call the concept the impossible body. Yes. So the whole thing came out of research I was doing when I was doing my doctorate and I was, I, I lead a double life being active in theater and film as both a playwright and a fight choreographer. And I had my life growing up as a martial artist doing various different ones, some in more depth than others, a couple in, in, you know, I got a black belt in Matsubashi Ru, which is a form of Okinawan karate. I was a competitive fencer, competitive wrestler. I was a, I worked with uh, judo, Aikido. I was a delicate person with all the wrong <laughs> hobbies. So this was just how I misspent a big chunk of my life. And this informed a lot of my fight choreography. And when it came time to 
contribute research. This was one of the directions that I was both going on my own and that my faculty told me that this was where I had a contribution to make. And what I started looking at was how martial arts gets represented on stage. And I'm talking about live theater and not film and specifically, let's just say mainstream type theater. Mm -hmm. So, cause I, cause we can make an, a very strong argument and I have a, a former colleague, Patrick Bradley, who did make this argument that wrestling is effectively, essentially a form of theater. But I'm talking about if you're doing a play mm -hmm. and there's a fight scene in the play and one of the characters is supposed to be a black belt in something. And then you have a, let's say we're a professional, we're on a professional contract. We have a six week rehearsal period. The fight choreographer is probably coming in three to four times if they accounted for that properly. And that's not counting the technical rehearsal. And he has to make an actor who is probably not actually a black belt look like they're a very effective martial artist. It has to be safe and repeatable. Mm -hmm. And it has to be a sequence of movements that a audience will recognize as air quotes martial arts. Mm -hmm. And I started looking at what were the tendencies, both in how this was written and how this often gets staged and then how it's responded to. And one of the consistent things that kept coming up was that people started, it was how do you stage people defying the laws of physics? And very often it was to comic effect. But if someone was, if there was going to be a fight and there would be a martial arts scene, and when I say scene, I don't mean that we break into a end of Enter the Dragon <laughs> five minute flashy thing. Like this might be a scene that takes literally eight seconds from start to finish. But it's going to it's going to have some kind of break in comic tension. Mm -hmm. So there's a play that I often bring up as an example of this. It's by a man named Lanford Wilson. It's called Burn This. The play is not about martial arts at all. But there's one character who's one of the two love interests, who's this very clean cut, pretty boy type who is supposed to be an Aikido instructor. This was written roughly the same time that Steven Seagal became popular, but just a little bit before. So the American public didn't really have a clear idea of what Aikido was. So he's supposed to be an Aikido and karate instructor. And at some point, he gets into a fight with this guy who's supposed to be a street thug. And he trounces him, basically. And how do you do? And, and it, it, it's a very short fight where the first part of it is the street thug swings at him. And I believe the stage direction is with one deft move, he throws him against the wall. And this is going to be actors who may or may not have the type of physical training you want them to <laughs> and an audience that didn't pay for a fight show. And what's that look like? And it's going to end up being more often than not, not really Aikido. Okay. And I watched, uh, I, I did once choreograph the show and I watched the archival footage of the original Broadway production. And I watched and I had the chance to see a few different productions of this. It is one of those standard issue done in repertory plays. And the, that fight, the beginning fight scene where the guy swings at him and just ends up being thrown is almost always comic. Hmm. And as I looked into more and more instances of how scenes like that get staged, they had very little to do with reality. And then when I started looking at what the inspiration was, because this is film going back and imitating theater, the uh, what the audience's idea of martial arts is ends up being something from film, something that is physically impossible. And 
uh, and when and present it believably enough that we accept it within the narrative. Mm-hmm. And you brought it up in the blog, and I think professional wrestling does a really interesting job of this. Of, re- of you wrote about wrestling logic, yes. where the more times you bounce <laughs> against the rope, the harder your punches. Uh, Sheems, is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. It's momentum, guys. <laughs> momentum. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just like you're building up potential energy, but but it is like how do you how do you treat the impossible on stage, and what does that do to the question that that brings up from my perspective is what does that kind of presentation do to how we tell stories and also how do we think about the potentiality of the human mm-hmm. body? Well, and that was sort of what I found fascinating about your talk, about your dissertation. You talked about, for instance, you know, moving it to something that probably more of our listeners have seen, the Matrix. Yes. From a realistic fight point of view, everything in the Matrix is just dumb like there's no logic to it whatsoever you cannot run up the side of a wall and shoot guns you cannot do anything that trended you can knee. if there is no spoon yeah sure and that, well and and that's exactly that's exactly the point the matrix is an amazing movie it, the fight choreography is amazing in it because i've been in fights before a real fight, a street fight lasts five or six seconds of two guys sort of awkwardly punching each other. And then one tackles the other. And then they just sort of hug on the ground and just punch each other in the head. That's how a fight usually goes down. If we're talking about social violence, then yeah. Yeah, yeah the entire thing might be 30 seconds. But that's not what you want in a movie. It's not usually what you want on stage. It's absolutely not what you want in a professional wrestling match. If somebody pays to get into a wrestling show, they pay 20 bucks to get into a wrestling show. And how many fights on our, are on a card, James? Like, hmm, it depends on the show, but like six to 10, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. They don't want to see yeah. guys hugging on the, the mat. Yeah. And moreover, if there were six matches on a show, you pay 20 bucks to get in or more if it's a big show. And every fight was 30 seconds long. Oh, my God. <laughs> the crowd would just revolt. <laughs> That'd be the stupidest thing ever if, if every fight was just, you know, punch, 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 and a guy gets knocked out. I mean, can you imagine if... um you remember when Mike Tyson was big and he would, you know, he had all these heavyweight title matches that were 90 seconds. He had a string of 90 second bouts and people were paying a hundred bucks for a pay-per-view. Yeah. Of, they restructured pay-per-view because of that. Yeah. You pay a hundred bucks. It was a scaled. Yeah. And it, it was a scaled payment system depending on how long the fight ran. Right. And I mean, it's great because he really was the best boxer in the world by a lot, which is why he was able to knock people out in, in, in a minute and a half. And it was just, you, you wanted an undercard just because what am I paying for? I, I want to be amused by something. I want to see something and enjoy it. And that goes back to what we were talking about. Uh, I mean, Shames, you said the X division, you can't even, even define it. It's just the point of it is you, you called it a firework show. Yeah. The point of a fireworks show is I want to go, ooh, ah, and, and, and again, DJZ was way better than I was, but there, our matches would be a lot of, you know, I had like five or six moves and then, and then Shima would climb and jump off something high and flip over 18 times in the air and then land on the guy. But like conservation of momentum, whether you jump or flip 18 times, then force times mass times distance, he's basically going to hit somebody with the same, with the same force, but it's, interesting to watch if he flips a whole bunch of times yeah it's more interesting it looks cool yeah exactly i mean i'm 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 a pretty simple guy and like (laughs) that's like the only way i can describe it it's like yeah if i just did a normal flip on him 
it's probably the same impact as if I add the two twists, but I don't know. It's like more of an adrenaline rush to add the two twists as well. So same yeah. impact, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's more flashy. It's more impressive, I think. And mm-hmm. I would, yeah. And I would say that it gives that particular move its own story where the story of that particular, like this man is hitting this other man, but this man, the, the, the path of the fist from one man to another goes through all of these through, goes through this whole journey of itself so that you're so eager to watch the punch land after all that. <laughs> yeah. Dude, that was the most beautiful description. Of, I'm not even kidding. That was, the, the I was like, damn. Narrative of the punch. <laughs> I love it. You know, in, in one of my other lives, I'm a theatrical fight choreographer. So this is how I have to talk to uh, directors and so on. But that, but that's, I give, if you think about what you're doing and, you know, correct me if I say anything dumb about it, because I've seen a fair amount of professional wrestling, but it's it's not my field. Like you're there mm-hmm. to watch a story. Yeah. And when you watch the story, every move has to count. Mm-hmm. So when you're getting to the big move and you know that the and you watch this whole narrative of the big move is coming, he started the big move. OK, he's halfway through his preparation for the big move. <laughs> Oh shit, the big moves got even more stuff coming to it. And then when it lands, it's like this climax of this whole story. And it's like, thank God he hit him. Yeah, absolutely. Or, oh no, you hit him if you're a heel. Yeah, you know what? I I was going on a rant last night about uh, crowd energy in wrestling. And I kind of described it as what you're saying. Like, the way I used to illustrate my point was I was comparing it to builds and drops in electronic music. I said that like a, like a mm. lot of my match, my matches in particular, like I go back to music a lot because I think that my experiences as a DJ and just reading crowds has kind of like helped me with wrestling. And now when I have wrestling matches, I I'm not doing things for myself. Everything that I do in the ring is designed to get a reaction from the crowd. If it's not going to get a reaction. I don't do it. I just cut it. Like I want everything to have a payoff and a, a reaction at the end. So it's like I'm building and I'm building just like you do for those drops in electronic music. The moves that I'm doing are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's going to reach this crescendo. And that's when the drop would happen. And the drop would just be the big move, the exclamation point that gets the big reaction from the crowd. So my matches are at least a lot of, like a lot of series of builds and drops, you know, and that makes total sense. And then when you start comparing that to what actual violence looks like, and when I, when I say actual violence, like we're talking about a really big spectrum of behavior, but it would almost never look like that. You might see a social build and you might see people building up this justifications or trying to get the other guy scared or whatever it is until a punch lands. Or you might see, you know, what Mav describes of just the people very ugly, not not interesting to watch movement. But when you when you talk about storytelling, it doesn't have a relationship to real violence. Yeah. And, you know, in some of my research and some of my other other hobbies, I end up watching I, I study a lot about the relationships between actual violence and violence and performance and whether or not there's much in common. And you know, usually there's not. But when you watch footage of of violence taking place, there's not a whole lot going on from from a storytelling perspective. But what you describe of the relationship between music, like, you know, you can steal my you can steal my terminology. I'm going to steal yours because that was awesome. And 
and that's how how you build a fight as well. And if you're creating a fight, I've done fights for operas and musical theater where you literally have the music yeah. crescendoing when yeah. someone's supposed to. And die. there's a rhythm too, right? Oh. Do you feel like that? Absolutely. Yeah, there's a rhythm. You know when it feels yeah. right. I'm gonna bring in the comics thing because you know, as, as someone who, who writes and draws comics. That's the way I talk about building the scenes. I, I talk about the beats of a story, the the rhythm of the pages, how one panel flows into another. Yes, and you know, they, the the fight scenes in comics are that as well. They are choreographed, but yeah, it's very much about when I'm breaking down a story. It's broken down by page, and each page has its individual beats. So that's very much how I think about composing stories when I'm writing this stuff. Yeah, yeah, this makes me feel good because like I was going on this rant last night, and I feel like my approach to wrestling, the way I think of it in the terms that I've already described, I feel like not most wrestlers are thinking that way. Now, Mav, you could like probably weigh in on this as well. Like I've come to realize that you know, there's a difference between like good wrestlers and bad wrestlers. And uh, in wrestling in particular, I think a lot of the wrestlers forget that this is a live show for the audience on the, I'm talking on like the independent level. Yeah, the guy, like that's the level me and Mav are wrestling on. A lot of guys, yeah, like they, they, they wrestle. <laughs> yeah. But like, but what I'm saying is a lot of wrestlers don't wrestle for the crowd. They wrestle for themselves. Like they'll, They'll do moves and certain things that the crowd might not understand. For example, if I was wrestling in West Virginia in front of like a kind of Southern crowd and all I did was like really obscure and intricate Lucha Libre submissions from Mexico, it wouldn't be very entertaining for the crowd because they don't understand mm-hmm. that. You know what I'm saying? So but the exact opposite is true too. So me and she are going to get really inside now and I've been retired for a few years. So this is great for me. The, the way you, book a, a lucha match at i don't know i'm just gonna say cmll just to pick a random lucha company i don't yeah. know if you've ever worked for them but anyway for yeah. a random mexico company you're going to have uh, uh, it is very very fast paced there um it is one of the rules of a, of a of a lucha tag match for instance uh like an eight-man tag is uh, two teams of four uh, fight each other in in america the way like when, if Shima and I are tag partners, he has to touch my hand in order for me to come in the ring. That's that's why it's a tag match in Mexico. If Shima leaves the ring, I get to come in. That's <laughs> because because we're looking for a much more fast paced story. It That doesn't make sense in the American rules. On the other hand, if you are working a southern style match, if you can like, if you are in, I'm going to say like Tennessee and uh, or or. Georgia and you work and you work a guy if you're you know you're a big 250 pound 300 pound guy and you work a guy to the ground into a headlock and hold it for a solid minute while you while you work his neck crowd will go crazy (laughs) that's an an amazing thing you know this all goes to the theory of uh there's different psychology for different cities for different countries for different crowds like in West Virginia, for example, you might do more of a Southern style wrestling match like you're describing. But like, for example, if, I, if I'm here in Chicago where I live and I'm wrestling for a bunch of drunk hipsters at a big independent show like AAW, I'm going to do more of that fireworks show that I described earlier. Yeah. It's like you, you, you have to pick and choose like what tempo you're going to wrestle mm-hmm based on the crowd and what they they're into. So, uh, I don't, I just been thinking about that type of stuff a lot when it comes to wrestling psychology, which is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Mm-hmm. My, my personal definition of wrestling psychology 
is, and tell me what you guys think, because I haven't said this like publicly. This is just the stuff that I rant about to young wrestlers on the come up whenever they ask for my advice. But, but, just, just, <laughs> but anyway, if you just pause for a second, I just love hearing Shane's talking about young. Because, again, I've known him since he started and I was the yeah, it's weird. I was, yeah, I I was the old guy when I met Shima. He was you might have been 16, 16, yeah, yeah, like 16 yeah. you just and you just turned 16. So so to me. Yeah eternally a teenager <laughs> but yeah yeah <laughs> but yes yeah but uh yeah, yeah it is it, definition it, of wrestling yes. psychology i want to hear yeah it. okay so uh anyway most people think of wrestling psychology as uh like applying logic to the details of their wrestling matches like for example if you're trying to tell a story of i'm going to injure this guy's arm then throughout the match you injure his arm or whatever and he sells the arm and you paint that picture and hopefully the crowd understands the story you're trying to tell, the direction you're trying to go. Like, that's all well and good. My personal definition, though, is whatever gets over with the crowd and getting over is a wrestling terminology for, like, uh, approval. Like, it's popular, it, it works, they like it, they're reacting to it. Uh, positively so getting over it's like to me that's all wrestling psychology is it's whatever gets a reaction from the crowd you could have the most logical story laid out with all the best details about how he's going to sell his arm and whatever but if it doesn't connect with the live audience that you're performing in front of then in my opinion it's not the right psychology <laughs> yeah so the term we use in theater for that is dramaturgy so dramaturgy is basically the concept of the study of storytelling yeah and I, I teach a workshop for young fight directors that's basically a workshop in story, in dramaturgy and storytelling. I started calling it Fighturgy. I published a little bit about Fighturgy, so that, that's findable for all you listeners out there. But one of the first things I tell them is that ground rules, what we are doing is not violence. What we are doing is 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 creating an abstract language we're creating Ooh. an abstract physical language that is indirectly related to violence that the audience reads as violent actions within a story dude you have a way with words that was awesome <laughs> i'm available for parties thank you but um but this is the stuff where you want to break it down that way. And when you have it broken down that way of we're creating an abstract language that's going to represent violence, then you just figure out what's the rules of the language. Because uh, I use I watch way too many Kung Fu movies. Are there ever and, too many? Well, there's never too many, but it's possible that like, you know, <laughs> you, you miss other stuff because you're on your you're, you've watched like all the Itmons at once. Oh. But. But there's there's a concept that I used to talk about in college. Concept's the wrong word. But where I said, you know, you have like these the like great old mass masters where they just come up to someone and they flick their finger and it goes bing and someone flies mm -hmm. through a wall. <laughs> and and you know, you only you have to believe that from the character. Because if you think about um Pai Mei from the Kill Bill movies, who's actually like a reference to a whole lot of mm -hmm. older movies, like that man coming out with the big white eyebrows and the long white beard, him coming up and flicking someone and then flying through a wall, you will buy that. Yeah, you and, believe you know, it. This is also, yeah, and like that's, that's kind of, you know, you, that's all the whole impossible body thing. And he's I totally don't badass know. by doing it. Like that's, like it's not just that you believe it. We read that story as, 
Right. Oh, well, it's ama- amazing that the bride and the other, the team, I can't remember what they're called, but Lucy Liu's character, uh, Veronica Fox's character, they were all very, very, very flashy fighters. And you are to believe that they are amazing fighters, except that you're by extension, you get to Pai Mei. And the fact that he can just get out of the way with very minimal effort makes him even more badass because you yeah. don't look at it as him being untalented. We read that as him being far more talented. Yeah, and that's beautiful physical dramaturgy. And you know, we have to give a proper shout out to uh, Yen Wopeng, who is the fight director who did the second Kill Bill movie and also The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and several others. And what something that a senior fight director pointed out really early in my training, that if you look at a movie like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, it's really clear who's at what level. Where, you know, Jen, the young girl, could walk into a bar and take out the whole bar. But she's only good enough to hold off Michelle Yeoh's character if she's got the Green Destiny sword. Where, meanwhile, Lee Mubai, Chow Yun-Fat's character, is, can like wipe the floor with all of them and he barely ever moves. And that's partially because he's not really as much of a kung fu star. He's more of a, you know, he does more of the shootout movies. But if you take someone like that who has that, that's that screen presence and you say we're going to come at you with the crazy flying all over the place sword move and i need you to move your left shoulder three inches and that's going to avoid it we buy that from him mm-hmm. and you know it, it reads and but we've also created the rules of that language of this is what it looks like when you're going to do the screaming flying deadly sword move of of heaven and you know, same logic that applies to a lot of professional wrestling. Yeah. So there's there's tons of overlap, and it's how do we how do we read the story that those physical bodies are telling, and the fact that it is outside the realm of you know reality, but the but it's within the logic of that story is part of what makes it enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's like whatever hooks you personally. Like there's aspects of wrestling that I have grown to appreciate now, the older I get that I didn't even think about or care about when I was a kid, like what you were just saying about the, uh, the Kung Fu and everything like that. It got me thinking about this idea. that I really like learned to appreciate in wrestling and it's just the fluidity of it. Like when I think of like Pai Mei, like his movements are like very elegant, you know, effortless yeah. the way that he moved. And that's something that, I appreciate when I'm watching wrestling that I didn't previously care or notice, but it's like wrestling is really physically demanding. Like the more, the more exhausted I get, the more difficult it is to look elegant and effortless (laughs) in these contrived movements that I'm attempting to do. It's all dude. It's, it's so much fun when we're choreographing it before the show, but then (laughs) it's like, Oh man, I actually have to do all of this. Like all of these explosive movements back to back to back to back, like damn. But, uh, but anyway, like I appreciate that. And now it's like, uh, when I'm watching wrestling, I look at that as part of the story too. Whereas like some people may look at some crazy move in a wrestling match and be like, like, that didn't make any sense or whatever. I might look at it and be like, wow, that was so like physically impressive that they were able to like do that with their bodies that late in the match. And I just get this like crazy appreciation for it. And I also like really second guess myself because I realize what a terrible athlete I am in comparison. (laughs) 
And how much of that stuff is something that, like, how much connoisseurship do you think exists in wrestling crowds? Because you talk about reasonable connoisseurship, but yeah, it's it's hard it's hard to say because. like, I don't know what people like, you know what I'm saying? What they necessarily appreciate. And if you haven't done wrestling personally, then I think you may possibly find it hard to relate to little details like that. Yeah. There's, you know what I'm saying? I, I had the same when, when we started, there's a, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, okay. Something, something super flashy moonsault. It's not even super flashy. Moonsault seven, uh, uh, um, uh, shooting star press. There, there are a lot of flashy moves that when you first sort of first sort of start up, pick up, pick up wrestling as like a seven year old, you're like, Oh my God, did you see what Billy Kidman did? Right. That's fair. Or, or whoever. Right. But then once you sort of do it and get into it, like, I don't know if I really appreciated how good JBL's clothesline was until, until exactly. I should explain. So for people who don't watch wrestling, a shooting star press is you stand on the top rope, or on, on the it's top like a gainer, yeah. like into a swimming yeah. pool. It's like a gainer. And you jump forward and do a backflip at the same time, so and and then land on the guy. It is visually stunning. It is an amazing, it is an amazing thing that takes a significant amount of athletic prowess and training to learn how to do. A cl- Especially if you're like tired, like 20 oh, minutes yeah. into a match, and then you do that. I'm like, how? <laughs> like, how? How did you do yeah. that? Um, <laughs> I have dislocated my arm trying to do it. And that is absolutely true. Kids don't try this at home. Now, a clothesline is, I mean, you run at a guy and then you stick your arm out so that you he runs into, I mean, as you run into him. Like you're basically yeah. trying to decapitate him with, with your, your arm. arm. Yeah. So it's, it, and, and that's a clothesline. So when you're seven years old, you look at the clothesline and you go, well, I can do that. So it must not be that hard, but you can't do that flip. So that seems like it's harder. Oh my God, getting the timing down perfectly on a clothesline to where it looks, I mean, that is such an, such an impressive thing to do that I don't even know how to describe it to somebody who maybe if you're, you don't have have to necessarily be a wrestler, but unless you've watched enough wrestling to sort of see the difference between what a JBL clothesline looks like and what one of mine looks like. (laughs) <laughs> there's well, you, there's well such this a, is a thing too is that the common the typical audience member that watches mainstream wrestling on tv only sees the top experts perform it so that's the only that's the only frame of reference you have the other thing is that when you think about some of the most difficult things to do in martial arts mm-hmm. they're not that impressive looking like there's a one of the there's a there's a skill or a speed test, you hang a piece of paper on a string and you try, and so it's free floating on a string and you try to poke a hole in it with oh your God, finger. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so impossible. Have you done that? Um, I used to be able to do that when I was crazy, when oh, I used to train constantly. But other- it's like super hard. Or there's something called a speed break, which I've only accomplished once. And, you know, it was my black belt test. So if I was only going to accomplish it once, this was the time. And this is where you hold a board, you let go of it and you break, break it in it the air. It falls, yeah. On the other hand, you break it and like, yeah. on the other hand, something that people are impressed by is uh, the, so the inch punch. Yeah. It, everybody knows what the inch punch is, but there's, a, you know, if you've ever seen a guy uh, break a, break a pinewood board from an inch away, um, I can do that. 
<laughs> Marone, you could you could probably I mean you you, you haven't been yeah, here. Yeah. It's it's not it's not I even hard. That. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's just knowing it, like it just takes knowing how to shift your body exactly the right way at exactly the right mo- uh, moment and where to hit the board. And it, it it's not even difficult <laughs> once you know how to do it. So sure. Or like you see the reaction to it is also what sells is if you, when you see someone do it in the movie, you're not seeing the inch punch, you're seeing the other guy fly across the room. Sure. And, and so like, that's part of it too. It's the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I, and well, so I want to return to something that you brought up very early about fight choreography. And this is sort of, you, you talked about as a, as a choreographer, your job is to take some guy who is a, you know, is a classically trained actor. Uh, he's, you know, so they hopefully have had training, but they might not have. But this is, this is someone whose talent is to memorize lines and to make lines believable. And they have theoretically not spent the last 40 years in a monastery training to, you know, snatch this pebble from, from your hand or whatever. But in order to sell that story of, Hey, I am creating this narrative where you are a, you know, you are a monk with a fifth degree black belt. You need to train him in order to be able to present that image. And what this reminded me of is that the story, this is, since we are primarily a comic booky and pop culture show, the difference between the choreography and the Netflix show Daredevil and the Netflix show Iron Fist. And oh God. for many, many reasons, which we don't need to get into about the, you know, about the message behind Iron Fist, it, the, the show legitimately took a lot of shit and that's fair. But one thing that you cannot blame Finn Jones for Finn Jones, who, who portrays Iron Fist is the fight choreography. And if you look at the, uh, if you look at the behind the scenes, the storyline, when they cast Charlie Cox as, as Daredevil, Charlie Cox got the job being Daredevil over a year before the show came out, before they started filming the show. And he spent like six months in intensive uh, martial arts training, learning to sell everything that Daredevil does on that show. So you get things like the hallway fight and the hallway fight part two, which are, I'm sure you would agree, some of the most visually stunning fight choreography that's been on on television, certainly. Actually, and it's up there for, for film. And then you get Finn Jones, who was hired to be Iron Fist like a month before they started production. And from what I hear from behind the scenes, there were points of that that of filming where they were literally teaching him to do the moves that he was to perform seconds before they filmed them. So they, they would stop the camera and they'd say, OK, we need you to punch this way and kick this way. It looks like this. You got it. OK, let's go. And. It doesn't do a service to the story. It doesn't do a service to making people believe the fight. And it's fucking dangerous. You know, <laughs> like someone could get killed. Well, it's not. What I will say is it's not necessarily dangerous because that's a very common way of choreographing. Mm-hmm. But that's not a common way of choreographing something that's supposed to be an action sequence. I didn't get all the way through Iron Fist. But I can tell you there was a couple really early fights where one of the big flaws was that it was logically inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And like when he tries that, that first fight, when he tries to get into the Rand building and the security guys fighting his way to the elevator, fighting his way to the elevator and all the security guys come out and he beats up the security guys. And there was just 
if, if, and they, they manhandle him. So there's a few, there were a few things that happened where I'm looking at it going, if you're the chosen one and you're supposed to be the greatest, the immortal iron fist, greatest martial artist currently living, that should not have <laughs> happened. That other thing should not have happened here. Though, like, it was just a whole lot of stuff that had no business happening if he was supposed to be the character that he was playing. And I don't want to place. I, get, I I think it was a. This was a culmination of a bunch of different clusterfucks that that made it to the screen in its form. <laughs> because I think I had just finished Luke Cage before I started trying to watch mm-hmm. Iron Fist, and Luke Cage was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And Luke Cage also was really great illustrations of what our like the topic that we're veering away from is because I think our our real topic today has become what is the narrative. Sure of of performed violence less so than what's the impossible right. body his, he is but the luke impossible cage, body luke cage is you can shoot him and exactly, he doesn't go down absolutely you could shoot him and he doesn't go down he can lift things up that i don't care how much protein is on your body <laughs> you should not be able to be to do the things that that character does and they make it work now i, I just want to jump in um Let's go to that topic. I, give me because we've talked about this this narrative thing with the fight or whatever. What is your definition of the impossible body then? Because we've been talking about you know, the impossible fights and impossible moves. Let's. I, I want to hear a definition. Your definition of that, just for for the audience and for me, okay. you know, while we talk about it. Okay. So I, I've been defining it. I've been using it as the framework for when we see the human body basically out act outside mm-hmm. the realm of what is physically possible. So this yeah. is just about this. This is all over comic books. So like if you take Superman, Superman is a pretty good iconic version of impossible body because you, you see Superman, everything Superman does is impossible, but he is a man who looks human, right? Like we're not going to get into the whole Kryptonian thing, but we have a, we have a man, a human man, or he's being presented either by a human man in any of the live action films or drawn as a human man in most of the cartoons or the comic books doing things that no human man can do, mm-hmm. but there's consistency of the logic when it's done well. And this just go- goes across the board to any like Gilgamesh has a bunch of impossible stuff in it. Uh, Herc, the, the, the Greek myths, when you get into some of the heroes and you get into Hercules, 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 Heracles, whichever one you want to call them, that's an impossible body. And this has always been in our entertainments. This has been in our entertainments since the dawn of humanity. But what started to happen in recent years is that we've become slicker and Mm -hmm. slicker in how we present it in our popular entertainments. So I think we're seeing a certain lack of understanding of what actual bodies can do. And I think it's arguable that this is, this plays into things like anorexia and bulimia. It's arguable that this plays into how people understand the news when there's acts of violence in the news. One thing that I talked about in the talk I did. We'll link to the talk in the show notes. You'll be able to click on it and see because it is very fascinating. Awesome. So I talk about, I, I gave the talk not long after the Navy SEALs killed Osama bin Laden. And one of the things, and if you think about what these guys had to do, and since that time, there's been movies about this and so on, but they were real people in real time on a very high stakes, with a very high stakes task. 
who had one chance to do it. And then some of the criticism about it, it sounded like people who were criticizing how someone was playing a first person shooter and they didn't do the boss level as well as they might have. (laughs) Or this was not the best way that they could have played that level of Doom, where really it's, you know, probably one of the more difficult missions that the public would have had any any really exposure to. And I think Mm -hmm. if we were to take it to another really difficult thing that just happened, if you think about the, the Thai soccer team that was trapped in that cave and that someone died getting oxygen to them, that was a a Thai commando or a former commando, whatever he was. But this man like very heroically got these kids oxygen, didn't have enough oxygen for himself. And we found the limitations of the human body. So, I would I would argue that this affects how we perceive thing how how things like anorexia happen because anorexia is to some extent it's really about control but mm-hmm. one of the things that the control is after is a body that cannot be mm-hmm. and when we see some other like when when we hear about police shootings in the news and I don't want to go case by case because some of these are horrific racist incidents that it's really clear what happened. But you also have statements where I hear people say, well, why didn't he just shoot the gun out of his hand? Right. (laughs) And this usually, you usually don't hear this from anyone who has ever tried to hit anything with a firearm, but this is an almost, almost impossible thing to do. And well, it exists in tons of entertainment. Yeah, mm-hmm. My my first thought with that, with the the, the gunfighting thing, is you, every Western movie we've ever seen sees these gunslingers who are doing exactly that. And you read the actual history of, of actual gunfights in the Old West, and it was two guys chasing each other around a table in a saloon, shooting everything but each other. And and that was pretty typical. It just seems the guns weren't that accurate, neither were the people. Um but you know movies have told us differently and the movies are the narrative that we have as our point of reference and we've become somewhat detached from our bodies in this way and you know there's some arguments that you know we live in a very like in a post-industrial society we have luxuries that were undreamt of even a hundred years ago the fact that we're in three different cities creating this podcast at the same (laughs) time is amazing and that we're doing it with stuff that like I bought the headset that I'm using at Staples for 20 bucks. Right, right. <laughs> and how long ago would we have to have gone where it would have been the four of us having to be sitting at a studio with engineers handling physical tapes. Mm-hmm. So as things get easier, we do to some extent lose touch with what's what. And I I would say too that this is more a product of mass entertainment. And, you know, I love I love the Matrix movies. I think the Matrix movies changed cinema forever. But when that's your frame of reference, your frame of reference is kind of fucked. I think if you start seeing live theater and you see people like, you know, in in the Greek theater, they talk about the deus ex machina Mm -hmm. where there's a god who gets who comes in and fixes whatever's wrong. And it's portrayed by a dude on a crane. And when you see a dude on a crane you know it's not a god, it's a dude on a crane, but it's a person representing the impossible ideal Mm -hmm. who's fixing the situation. When you see that same thing happen in a movie, everything looks real and believable, and if it's done well, and I think it should be done well, it has this internal logic, 
and we've lost it, it it starts to make us lose touch with what is and isn't real i would say that professional wrestling live shows i've seen a handful also are things that are helpful in bringing back a sense of perspective to what the body's capable of because you're seeing these guys who are obviously athletes doing this symbolic language that's representing violence because you're really seeing it in real time. And Shima, correct me if I'm wrong or DJ Z or <laughs> call you Shima. Cause I've always heard of you as Shima. So, that's cool. so you correct me if I'm saying anything wrong, but you know, you're watching these, these guys do this and the crowd's reacting to the story, but they're not having the same reactions they would have in a boxing match. In a boxing match, you're, you're applauding one athlete's, one athlete's skill against another athlete. In a wrestling match, you're applauding one character's narrative against another. And because, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's abstracted. It's not really like, you know, if you're building up the triple flip, you know, backslap, then the triple flip is what does it. If you're watching Mike Tyson in his prime, knock someone out with one punch and that's the end of that, you really celebrate that one punch. I think we're going to a weird place where we have uh, UFC fighters who are now joining the WWE, like Ronda Rousey, yeah. like you know, who's a phenomenal athlete and just got into the UFC Hall of Fame. But when we see her in in wrestling, I don't think we're seeing the same stuff we saw at the Octagon. No, absolutely not. Yeah, there's a weird history yeah. between the two sports of. Uh, people who have gone back and forth, uh, Rousey, Lesnar, back in the day, Severin, yeah. and um, who else? Uh, oh, Ken Shamrock, right? Yeah. There's also a guy named Matt Riddle who's like really gaining some steam on the independent wrestling scene. He's like even got his own like genre of wrestling. He calls it sport wrestling, where he still treats it like it's an athletic competition the same way he would if there were a UFC fight. And mm -hmm. he gets in there and it's not like a. Uh, a hokey looking wrestling match. It looks very legit and the crowd believes it just because they know he is authentic. He is legit. So they believe that everything he's doing is legit as well. Yeah, I have a early memory of watching wrestling as a child and I'm going to date myself here, but it was the, my first exposure to Ricky, the dragon steamboat. And he was someone who did a whole bunch of martial arts inspired moves. Mm -hmm. And I have this really clear memory of the commentator going like, yeah, he's really, good but what he's doing that's not really wrestling when he's <laughs> cheating and bringing in these martial arts to it <laughs> and you know you have to picture like little tiny maron looking at that going yeah but it's cool but <laughs> what is wrestling and you know I had to go do a whole lot of like I ended up writing a book yeah. to figure that out. <laughs> so so part, of, part of my thought with this though is you're talking about the the unrealistic expectations that we we develop based on watching the movies. But there's also you know you watch the Olympics and and you watch these sports and year after year after year, we as a human species, certainly not me as a person, but we as a species <laughs> are getting better at these things. You know, like like the records are broken every year. You I, I watch I watch mm -hmm. Olympic gymnasts doing things that. This is impossible. Physics do not allow for this, but they're they're doing it. Um, and so, I, I'm just trying. I guess I'm trying to to put that into this whole mesh of things. That you, well, when you start watching, I mean, when you're watching virtuosity, mm -hmm. virtuosity is not virtuosity changes what's yes. possible. Because I like there's all this talk about when are we going to see someone break the uh, the two hour mm -hmm. marathon. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, when someone did break the four minute mile, I think we're also seeing that some sports, the records have been consistent, yeah. some they haven't. And I forget which is which. Like, I think the long jump has been pretty consistent, but sprint times have been getting mm-hmm. shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. And gymnastics, we're getting like, you know, athletic science is getting better and better and sports medicine and our understanding of what the body can do. And when you have someone who is effectively a professional right. athlete who's in their prime doing these things, you, you get what can be done. But like if you're playing an NBA game and playing in a park, yeah. our differences are not differences in content, they're differences yeah. in scale. And, and, and see, there's expectations. Because I, you know, one of the, the you know, running gag that my roommate and I have, we're, you know, we're watching TV and we're watching you know, The Matrix or whatever, and we see someone do one of those impossible things, one of those will just be like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and and, and you know, obviously it's meant as a joke. But then, you know, I'll, we'll watch American Ninja and say the same thing. And for us, that's as impossible as anything that happens in the Matrix. But that's really happening. People well, are doing these things. So there's certainly something to the fact that on a micro evolution, it's almost like we're evolving as a species in order, in order to sort of be able to do things that we considered impossible back then. I mean, yeah, you said there's probably a whole topic on transhumanism we can talk about with that. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, when, when you start looking at like just the where medical science mm-hmm. is, and, you know, you have people walking around with uh, artificial yeah. hearts. Right, right. And you have people where, where it used to be that, oh, no one can survive that disease, but now they can. 150 years and, ago, you broke you know, your leg, you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> Civil yeah. War. No, I mean, Civil War era. We're not talking about that long ago. The 1860s, you know, 150 years ago, you broke your leg. Oh, oh God. It was good knowing yeah. you, you know, because you, you would die. Well, you were going to get infected and you were going to die. And it was the same with like most, a lot, or I won't say most because I don't have the statistics in front of me, but we know that if someone got stabbed in a duel, they were likely to die of infection mm-hmm. later. And, you know, so stuff like that, okay, we're, we're, we're redefining what's possible, but in terms of where we're at now and what we can do and how we understand it, there's still, I th- we, we have to societally, I think that what I, what I would want to see and where I would want to see my research go is just better understanding of what's real versus what's entertainment and less mm-hmm. blurring of reality and entertainment. Because mm-hmm. this also goes into the 24 hour news cycle and having to create something new every time. And this concept of it was called propaganda up until two years ago. Now yeah. it's called fake right. news. And what does that do? And what does it mean when, when we start perceiving, when, when we start blurring re- entertainment reality too often and when entertainment becomes our reality? Nice. I, I think that's a really important point to make. Okay. So other places where we see this is where we talk about what is the perception of the police officer in mm-hmm. entertainment versus what is the perception of the police officer in different communities? And in, in the news, in after incidents, before incidents, and how do we perceive when, when we hold police officers and soldiers and, you know, my, my name's Maron. I'm Israeli. You're kidding. My people <laughs> yes. are in the news a lot. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shalom, everyone. But my people are in the news a lot. And there's a lot of, and people are looking at border clashes and at reactions to terrorism and they're saying, oh, it's unfair and disproportionate. And 
I'm sure that I'm going to drive a lot of traffic to the site with this because we're going to attract all of this political stuff. But the discussions around it, they're reacting to border clashes as if someone's cheating at soccer. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sport. Politics. Is- it's a sport. It's like, oh, someone threw a rocket. Is someone threw a rocket at your head? Why did you respond with what you responded with? And it's like, well, if you're coming from video game logic, a rock at your head is a really like level one player thing. So that only distracts this much from your energy bar so that when you react with this other level of force, this, you know, you're, you're not playing the game right. And one of the other things I, I, I follow a lot of people who are kind of gurus in the self-defense martial arts community. Some people who I give, who I need to give uh, shout outs to work of people like Rory Miller and Mark McYoung. And they are people who do a lot of work in terms of violence prevention and so on. But a lot of their things about violence prevention also deal with how does violence take place? And a thing I hear very often or that I see a lot of times is they go, oh, why did it take five cops to hold that guy down? And the reality of it is that that's probably the safest thing possible both for that guy and for the cops. Because if five guys are holding one guy down, he can't move and he's not going to hurt himself or anyone else. Whereas when they say, oh, five guys on one, that's unfair. Where, you know, maybe you watch the end of the first Lethal Weapon where Mel Brooks' character like has Mel everyone Gibson. stop <laughs> and he has what's... Yeah. Mel Gibson. Gibson. Sorry. Very yeah. different movie. <laughs> Let's confuse the Jew <laughs> with the anti-Semite. But, um, and that, okay, because you said that, this is not getting cut. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, but the, the Mel Gibson character has this big standoff fight with the bad guy who's also supposed to be the special forces person. And we have this moment of, Oh, you want a shot with, you want a shot against the champ. And they have a fight with wet, a fight with bare hands, a fight with weapons where it's like, you know, what was it like a phone pole versus a police baton. And then in the end, then like, you know, Mel Gibson beats him. And in the end he pulls the other guy takes another cop's gun, aims at, at Mel Gibson and Mel Gibson shoots him with a gun that appears from somewhere. <laughs> and so we have that our hero has beat the bad guy with uh, close quarters weapons, unarmed and firearms. And the other guy cheated and he won. Whereas I am friends with some former police officers and people in law enforcement. I'm friends with many former military people. And I don't think anyone would ever have put themselves in that situation. And I believe there's a saying from the Marine Corps that if you ever find yourself in a fair fight, you've planned improperly. I like that. I, yeah. I was and a long time wrestling heel, so I love that. That's, that's a perfect line. Yeah. So we have this concept of what violence is supposed to look like that is about as far off as our concept of what sex is supposed to be if all you watch mm-hmm. is porn. Which, which is another show, but yes, I agree. And yeah. this... Which is another show, but like that's a, but if you think about it and you know, it's probably, and I would also say, this is something I, I say in a lot of workshops, your typical audience member has probably seen exponentially more entertainment violence than they've seen real violence. One would hope, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I think 99, 99.99% chance that even if you are in the roughest neighborhood or like I mean, if, if you're in a war zone, you're in a war zone. And my, 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 my 
words mean nothing at this point. But if we're talking about someone who's growing up in a neighborhood that has a high crime rate, they will see more incidences of violence in one week of television than they will see in their neighborhood. Anywhere, almost yeah. anywhere in America. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Almost anywhere in the world. Almost anywhere in the world. Anywhere, anywhere with, with mass entertainment. Anywhere with they ma- will mass entertainment they, and not an act of war in the streets. Many, yeah. 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 So like if you look at, if you think about how much violence is in a Tom and Jerry cartoon yes, or in a typical Looney Tunes cartoon and you start actually counting how much violence there is and how, how, how little consequences there are too. Cause uh, I was talking to Wayne earlier and we were talking about learning fight choreography. And one of the things I've always seen with people learning fight choreography is that there's mm-hmm. lots of laughing and smiling. And my, my theory on this is that you're having Mm -hmm. violence without consequences. And there's that theory of humor that's out now, benign violation theory, where in order to be for something to be funny, it needs to be both a violation of an accepted belief and benign. So the idea that someone can go up to their training partner, smack them upside the head, have them have a huge reaction to it, and then everyone smiles and they do it again and no one's hurt is probably triggering that same thing. And the research behind that, and I should dig you up the link so you can put it in the, in the post with it, is that this is something that in evolutionary biology, if you're able to see things that are wrong, you're going to survive longer. And if you see something that's sort of wrong, but it's benign, you have a pleasure response that you get from humor. Yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. And it's going to work in different places in different ways because something that's benign in one culture in one time period is not in another. Yeah. I'd also, I'd like to tie it into, I expect Shima might've read this book and the two of you haven't, but um, Mick Foley, one of my all time favorite wrestlers has written, he's written four autobiographies, which seems weird. His second autobiography, Shima, do you remember the name of it? It's um, something Uh, 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 Foley, Foley is good. And the real, the real world, world is, is faker than, than wrestling. wrestling. Yes. And um, in his second autobiography, again, it sounds really weird to say that he's written four, but it makes sense once you read them. He, he sort of runs out of life story about two thirds of the way through the book because yeah. he, he, he basically gets up to where he is in his life. And he's like, well, I already wrote an autobiography. And then the second autobiography, he, he starts from where he was and just keeps going. And then he gets, he catches up to right now and he's like, I got no, no story left. So I'm going to do an academic study. It was, it was, very, yeah. <laughs> and he basically, he basically explains it and he says, well, um, someone had been complaining that he was looking at, uh, at, uh, Parent, parent, parents television council complaints that wrestling was too violent and it shouldn't be on television. And he said he wondered whether or not wrestling was really too violent. And he's like, well, I work for the then WWF. He's like, I work for the WWF. I've got access to a lot of wrestling footage. So he went and got like a year's worth of professional wrestling footage and this is this is very similar to the roland bart study that we linked to in the in the original notes but he basically watched every episode of wwf raw for a year and then he went and watched a bunch of television and hbo movies and his his classic example i think was home alone which is obviously a comedy and he was and he talks about how uh, and so he watched it, he annotated, annotated everything that happened. And then he just went to his personal physician 
And he got his doctor and the two of them sat there to discuss the actual trauma that would be associated with various things in, in professional wrestling versus real versus these movies, these uh, this children's film. And a lot of the wrestling things are, well, you'll probably get a concussion. And Mick says, that's true. I did get a concussion. <laughs> you know, there. So there's a there's a lot of that. And then it's like, OK, that. yeah. Home Alone. What happened? And he's like. What would happen? It's like, oh, you'll die. Like almost everything in Home Alone. Those guys died <laughs> 18 billion times in that movie. This child would have just killed them over and over again because it's like you're dropping a brick off a roof onto somebody's head. That's not good for you. Like you're <laughs> just going to crush your skull. And But it's funny. And I would say a body that takes that is right. impossible. That takes that. Yes, it is impossible that they lived through it. But the fact that they did, that makes comedy. Solid callback, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I think that that's something too. Where if that's your concept of what violence looks like and the consequences of violence, then you have no good frame of reference, and bad things can happen. So that's where I, that's where I see, and the the irony of it is that if you actually studied violence, so, so there's that that whole thing. See less of it. it. Everybody talking about, you know, media, movies, all this stuff makes makes people more violent. And I don't think that's what you're saying. I think what you're saying is all the violence that we're witnessing makes us more ignorant of violence, actual violence. Uh, yeah, like numb. Yeah, well, it's also be- because there's so little violence that we ha- that happens. Yes. Every yeah. incident of violence is magnified. I, I so when something ha- – yeah, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I, I, paper um, – <laughs> It's it's odd because very, very infrequently does a show go by where I don't talk about PCACA, which is my favorite conference in the world. But the very first one that I did was at Marone's uh, suggestion. I went to Boston and did, I don't know, this was probably 12 years ago, the first one I did. And I went there to talk about professional wrestling and violence uh, in in the, the masculinities aspect of it. And one of the arguments that I made is... If we go back a couple of thousand years, people had a much harder life and their entertainment was let's watch a guy, you know, let's toss a guy in an arena and watch him fight a lion to the death. That this sounds fun. <laughs> let's just see what happens here. You know, that that was that was kind of, you know, and this this is a real violence thing or, or gladiators. I mean, we'll just make two guys fight and kill each other. But, you know, let's watch a man fight a lion. Yeah, what? You know, either he'll live or die, but it should be entertaining. And now we've sort of we've progressed to this. No, we'll have a ring with rules. Maybe toss some characters in there. And um, I mean, mm-hmm. the great thing about pro wrestling is the the fight ends when somebody pins their shoulders for three, you know, for three seconds instead of and then the guy dies. There's no, you know, this isn't Spartacus. It's so it, it is a more evolved version of 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 violence. But on the other hand, I think what you're saying is because I can watch I can watch wrestling on television three nights a week. I can turn on Netflix right now and watch any amount of kung fu, karate, action movies. And I don't know that it makes us more violent, but I believe you're saying that we have a different association of what violence means. And I think that I think the clearest explanation I can see is the evolution of the character of John McClane and Die Hard in the first Die Hard movie and the really good one. He's a regular guy who essentially mm-hmm. has very real consequences to every action he takes. Yeah, the, 
a, a big uh, significant portion of that film of the drama in that film is because he doesn't have any fucking shoes and it's and and the yeah. glass is cutting him yeah. and that's yeah. that's horrific and it's very real fast forward 15 years and he's shooting himself in the gut to hit <laughs> to hit a guy behind him because that's just sort of the in order to be bigger and uh, that's the story that they're telling he lives in a video game world in the later die hard movies as opposed to a very real grounded world in the first one yeah yeah, and that's that's what we've gotten to where we're watching video game violence and our frame mm-hmm. of reference ends up having no relation to reality. And so I don't know that it makes us more violent, but if we expect that same level of faux reality, of hyper reality. I, I think that's that's definitely a deeper way of looking at this, a deeper question than just, oh, do video games make us violent? Mm-hmm. This adds a whole different layer of interpretation to to the entire topic i think yeah i actually had a martial arts instructor say to me once that um he believes that video game have video games have reduced street violence because just on a very practical level level <laughs> teenage boys are staying home to play video games right. <laughs> they're not out fighting and we have neither right. of our game experts on this week <laughs> yeah. but it's an interesting sociological mm. concept well, that, I, I do think there's something cathartic about it as well you know the whether it's just watching it or playing the video games or the any of the, any of these these activities that allow you to participate without consequences provides a certain catharsis to to violent natures or or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we like violence because it makes so, us feel good. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, we like violence, but well, the, if we're gonna pull out Aristotle and all this, then the heart of drama, which is one of the great you know sources of all entertainment, is conflict. And violence is one of the clearest articulations of conflict. If you walk mm-hmm. into, you know, if you walk into a Shakespeare, you walk into Romeo and Juliet and it's, mm-hmm. and it's like Romeo fighting Tybalt, you kind of know what's going on right away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's the mm-hmm. Clausewitz quote of war is uh, diplomacy by other means. One of the <laughs> things I talk about in some of the workshops I teach is that violence is the pursuit of character objective by other means. Okay. And because it's characters pursuing an objective and it's super, super clear, you have, you have the, the, one of the things that fight directors have in theater is that you have the clearest articulation of character objective of almost any discipline. If you're doing Hamlet to be or not to be, then you have to unload all of this existential philosophy. If you're doing the sword fight between Hamlet and Laertes, it's pretty clear what's going on. There's no question of objective and conflict. And because we're watching objective and conflict and because we are wired for story, violence, performed violence always has story. Or if it's done in any way that is satisfying, it has mm-hmm. story. Something like Home Alone, that has a very clear story. Yeah. And you just know these two bad guys are chasing this poor, innocent, harmless, helpless little kid who's kicking their asses with all of these things that, you know, should be killing them. But because we're not getting the consequences, it's kind of funny and it keeps going. Mm-hmm. So should I say it now? Yeah. <laughs> so, so once again, we've resolved nothing. Well, except for that yeah, almost I mean, feels but, weird. This, like time, this does inform <laughs> Have we resolved how nothing? we think of our bodies. Yeah, I know. I, I, I think there's some brilliant points that have come up in this conversation uh, and just to say a, a way of reframing I'm just surprised we didn't get in a fight over this whole thing. 
Well, so I have a way to figure out if we've resolved nothing. So, you know, we've had two different, I'll consider you both violence experts in your, in your own ways. So Wayne, if Ethel attacks you again, (laughs) you know, some, some 50 years later, do you feel right. like you're more prepared? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if, if her brother's not there to kick my ass after. <laughs> so the, the fact that I haven't been in a real physical fight since then tells me that I've learned the, the skill of de-escalating. So. <laughs> See, I feel that you should be able to de- de-escalate the situation and resolve it peacefully. The consequences <laughs> and the limitations of your physical body. Yes. It, it, it involves a lot of running away. So, well, so we've resolved something but that's not as good a tag phrase i don't know yeah but thank you both for coming yes this was fascinating this was fascinating oh my pleasure this was great yeah dude it's like fantastic discussion and conversation i feel like i learned a lot just from listening to you guys honestly yeah same here so if we turn on impact next week and in the middle of the djz match you just stop fighting and you just start talking about aristotle that would be (laughs) that would be logically inconsistent thank you thank you yes <laughs> oh, I, I really be, like that word. <laughs> it would be it, great, it, though. It would, it would be a benign violation of the wrestling. <laughs> I don't know if it would be benign. <laughs> I just, I just want to. I just absolutely want to see that. You're just like, you know, it's like, no, stop. But have you considered the dramaturgy? <laughs> like, and the fans just going, what the. F- <laughs> Anything you want to promote? Uh, just my social media at I am DJZ, Instagram, Twitter. Yeah, follow me there. I keep it mostly wrestling centric, wrestling related. So, uh, yeah, if you're curious about me and what I do, check me out on social media. It, 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 there's, yeah. Typical IMDJZ posts involve a lot of here's where I'm going to be, here's where I'm going to be, here's where I'm going to be. So you find out where all, all of his shows are. And then there's like, just pictures of wrestlers eating lunch. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've really tried to like do less of that. It's like I used to do a lot of that, but I've, I've tried to just keep keep my social media like focused now and mostly just promoting the events and yeah. really cool photography that people happen to capture of me and my light up suit. Yeah, yeah, you do. You do post a lot of. I mean, I don't. Even, I don't even know for the comfort. Are, are they just like fan pics that people send you? Some of them are fan picks. A lot of them are just ringside photographers that just take some really great shots. Yeah, so there are cool action shots that show up a lot. But thanks nice. for coming on. I hope you come back at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. Marone, you've, you've been here before. Yes. So you're welcome back anytime you uh, want. <laughs> I'm happy to do this again. So I can be found yeah. at uh, my website, MaroneLongsner.com, M-E-R-O-N-L-A-N-G-S-N-E-R. And uh, I have a Twitter also under my name. I'm the only person of my name. If I find another, I think we have to fight. And yeah. And that's like... <laughs> there can be only one. <laughs> if there were more, people great. would have to learn how to pronounce my name better. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then that, that links to all my writing and whatever I'm doing at any given time and whatever shows I'm working on and so on. So if you happen to be, I guess you're in the New York area primarily yeah. Yeah. And, and a show and he's doing a show, it will be linked on his website. You can follow the show's website at www.voxpopcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Vox Popcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or my website, www.chrismaverick.com, where I will hopefully really soon write a review about um, the last couple of movies that I've seen that I've just been too busy to write up Wayne, where can people find you? Uh, www.wayne-wise.com though that hasn't been updated for a while. Don't follow me on Twitter because you'll be severely disappointed. <laughs> no, again, well, you can, what's, 
once a month or so, I'll sign on and, and retweet all the Vox podcasts. I'd like to, as always, thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our theme song, which is playing right now and being epically building louder and louder as I keep talking. If you are listening to the show, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else podcasts I'm come from. Shit. Shout out to Mark Schultz for writing our first review. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, yeah, we have a review. So please also write reviews like Mark and we will mention you if, and say thank you. Our eternal reviews help people find the show and help make us more famous. And we want to be because we don't want to do real work. <laughs> so <laughs> help us live our eternal dream of just being guys who talk on the Internet. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you guys again for coming here. Yeah. Sure. Thanks. And we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye.